from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Christina and Jafrid Mato a Baha'i couple who met at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. She is an American, and he is Kenyan. They currently reside in Wilbraham, Massachusetts. I started the interview with Christina with her new baby on her lap. I asked Christina where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And what was your religious upbringing like? Well, that was interesting. My father was Catholic. And my mother was Protestant. So it took them a while to, I think, decide how they wanted to raise us. Up until my sister and I were in primary school, we were going to both CCD and Mass once a week at the local Catholic church. And we were also attending Sunday school at the local Protestant church with my mom. Neither of us particularly liked CCD. <laughs> we thought that the Sunday school at the Protestant church was a lot more fun. But we went to both, and then at some point, I guess as my parents tell it, apparently I came home one day and said, I'm not doing this anymore. Both um, or just? No, just the Catholic one. Mm-hmm. They just said I just knew that I didn't want to be a Catholic at that point, and I refused to go. Mm-hmm. And my parents said it kind of put them into a, a little bit of a problem because they said, uh-oh, now what do we do? My well, your mother didn't have a problem with it, right? It was mostly your, it would, I would think it would be your father. Right. No, my mother didn't have a problem with it. Actually, neither of them did. But it just sort of meant that if I wasn't going to go, uh. then my older sister, they'd pull her out as well. And so that was sort of the end of our, of our Catholic upbringing. At that point, and, and after that, we were raised in the local Protestant church all the way through high school. What were your interests in high school? I played the cello. Mm-hmm. So I played in the school's orchestra and the local youth symphony, and I played sports. So I was on several different sports teams, and I guess my extracurricular activities were, <laughs> were more of a focus than my academics at that point. So what did you do after high school? Uh, Well, I decided to look for something to do for a year before going to college. I wanted to take a little bit of a a break, so we investigated different options, and I ended up participating in City Year. What's that? In City Year, now it's it's affiliated with AmeriCorps. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was just a private um, organization, but basically it was in Boston, and we uh, youth between the ages of 
18 and 24 would volunteer to do one year of community service. And so I applied to that out of high school and was accepted. So I moved to Boston from Western Mass and lived out there and did that program. And that was that had a huge impact on my life. The whole idea of it was it was kind of two part. It was partly to for youth to do something constructive and to do community service in the city. But the second half of it, which was just as significant, was that it got a very diverse group of youth together and taught us how to work in teams. They divide us into teams of between like 10 and 12 people, and we'd have a team leader who was an adult. They would assign us to do various projects around the city, whether it was in being teacher's aides in schools or my particular team was in the environmental division. So we did a lot of gardening and construction around the city. But that experience of being put on a diverse team and none of us, not a single one of us, had ever had an experience quite like that. We were from every possible different background, city and suburban, rich and poor, every racial background you can think of, and just all having to get up and work together all day, every day, very closely. It was it was really a life-changing experience for all of us. And what specifically did you do um, in your teams? Well, there were a couple of abandoned plots of land um, in some parts of the city. So they would connect us with local nonprofit development groups, and they would help us to, they'd sort of provide the tools and tell us what to do, and then we would provide the manpower. So we built a couple of community gardens in some neighborhoods that needed some revitalization. And then we, we worked in one senior home, sort of providing activities for some of the elderly folks that live there. And we spent some time in, in East Boston volunteering in an elementary school where we taught the kids in the school about <clears throat> environmental issues. So it was a variety of activities, but all related to the environment in one way or the other. Christina, what moved you to do a, a year of service like this before going to college? Well, I think it was a combination of not feeling completely ready just to go immediately from high school and then to more school. I felt like in order to really have the energy and the interest and the motivation to do well at college, I needed to take a short break and do something completely different so that when I did go back to school, I would be excited about it. And mm. at that point, in my senior year of high school, I wasn't really excited about college yet. You know, there were different options, but I, I think another inspiration was that my mother had been in the Peace Corps in the late 1960s. So I'd grown up hearing about her experience in India. There was that emphasis within the family about doing service, I guess, and, and giving some time of your life to do something humanitarian. So it felt very natural, and my parents were very open to it. You know, So when I suggested, hey, why don't I do something like this, they said, sure, it sounds great. They didn't, they didn't object at all. So what happened after you finished your year there? 
after I finished my, my year in Boston, I guess because of the experience I had getting to know all of these other youth who were so different from myself, I decided rather than go to this small private school that I had agreed to go to for college, I ended up going to UMass instead because I decided I wanted to continue sort of a more diverse experience. So I changed track a little bit there. I went to UMass. From there, I just started exploring my different interests. That's when I more seriously started investigating the Baha'i faith. Now, it sounds like you had run into the Baha'i faith before going to UMass. I had. I Actually, I was introduced to it when I was... 11. Yeah, how did that happen? Well, actually, I have an, one aunt and uncle who became Baha'is in the 70s. Mm-hmm. They always lived far away from us, but we would go and see them over holidays. And it was just, it was actually one Christmas that we went to visit family over the holidays, and I spent a night at their house. That night, they all, the whole family, my aunt and uncle and their two children, sat around together in their living room and they said prayers together mm-hmm. and it doesn't probably doesn't sound very revolutionary but <laughs> it made a very big impression on me and why is that i think because you know up until then i liked going to church but it wasn't really a family thing it was it was just something that you did and you attended the the sunday school classes and you learned about the religion, but it wasn't really something that we discussed at home. We didn't pray together as a family. And when I saw my aunt and uncle's family praying together, they just had a really, really wonderful spirit about their family. They were, they all got along really well. My little cousins, who were younger than I was, talking about spiritual things was really shocking. And I just had this sense like, wow, I really wish my family were like this. Even though I didn't actually look into the Baha'i faith for many years after that, it it always, always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And what were the circumstances that caused you to start looking at the Baha'i faith again when you were at UMass? Well, by that point, I was really looking. I think partly it was because my parents going through a divorce, you know, I think going through that kind of experience, difficult experience, and remembering this one time that I had spent time with this other family that just seemed so united, just was always drawn back to that memory. And also, you know, it was was just a time where I was away from home and living on my own, and I, I looked into several different like religions and denominations. I attended various churches, and I read a lot about Buddhism. I was just looking for what, you know, would sort of answer my questions that I had about life and why certain things happened, and I think I was just searching for answers. And so I remembered that I had been introduced to the Baha'i Faith many years before, and I looked up the Baha'i Faith in the yellow pages in the, in the phone book, and I just called the number. And they turned out that there was a, a woman in my dormitory who was a Baha'i, and I was just kind of hooked up with her. And that's sort of where the, the search started for me in a serious way. Mm-hmm. 
And can you describe more of the process? Well, when I met this Baha'i woman in my dorm, she lent me some books, which I did not read. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I wasn't really looking for books. I was looking for a community. But I sort of glanced at them and... But I, I started asking my aunt and uncle, who at that point lived in Texas. I began calling them and asking them questions. It wasn't even very conscious that I was looking for the faith, but I, I even went and spent one of my winter breaks with them. I flew down to Texas and I spent three weeks with them. And we spent, you know, a lot of the time just talking about religion and life, and I asked them so many questions and read several books while I was there. What were some of the questions that you were asking? I remember sitting at their dinner table, and they had a bookshelf, a small bookshelf next to the dinner table, and I I saw the book, The Divine Art of Living, and the title of the book really caught my eye, and it reminded me of another book that I had already read that was not a Baha'i book, but it was something that it was like had been a very inspiring book to me. And I said, does that book say The Divine Art of Living? <laughs> I said, that sounds great. You know, what is that about? So they just started talking to me about, about what it was. And then so we had sort of opened up a conversation about life. And they knew that I was kind of going through a tough time with my family and so they were just there, you know, kind of giving me a lot of encouragement about, and they, they taught me about, like, the purpose of tests and difficulties in life. So I would say those are the kinds of things that we talked about. And, and then when I left, my aunt actually slipped a copy of The Divine Art of Living into my suitcase without telling me. And so when I got home and I opened up my bag, there it was. So I had something to look at. And I just, I think I just, it was more of a gut feeling. I didn't read all that much, and I really didn't attend any Baha'i events. I was just, it was just a gut feeling that this was, that this was right, and that what I really wanted, and where I felt comfortable. And so... Well, that's interesting, Christina, because you weren't really associating with Baha'is, you weren't really reading anything, so Mm -hmm. what was the, what was it that felt right? I think it was the few, the few quotations from the writings, from Mm -hmm. Baha'u'llah's writings that I had read. Mm -hmm. I had read very few of them, but the ones that I did read, it just, just really hit home. I, every time I would read a passage from the Baha'i writings, I would say that makes complete sense. And I never had to, you know, kind of question it or analyze it or, you know, say, oh, how does this compare with, you know, what I believe? Or It just was like, yes, this is, this is already what I believe. And it's because it was a very difficult time in my life, I, and I, every time I turned to the Baha'i writings, I found them uplifting. And I think that having that experience over and over again of just being able to open up a book, whether it's a prayer book or my favorite was The Hidden Words, and I would just read one hidden word, and, you know, it was just so uplifting. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what you mean by The Hidden Words. The Hidden Words is a small book 
of kind of brief passages written by Baha'u'llah. They're sort of described as the essence of, of the faith, the essence of the teachings, because in a very few words, they capture the spirit of the writings. They're sort of encompass moral teachings. But I guess, honestly, the one that I remembered from when I first heard it when I was 11, and then I went back to it again in college when I was seeking more, was the very, very first hidden word, which is, O Son of Spirit, my first counsel is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. And that's it. But I thought, wow, my, you know, my first counsel is this, you know, just that we're, we should possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Like, for me, that just, <laughs> that was yeah. almost enough right. to say, yep, that's where I want to be. I want to be a part of this. So what happened after you got back from Christmas break at your aunt and uncle's? The next semester, I applied for a study abroad in in Spain. And I think at that point, my aunt was starting to see that I was interested. Because they live in Texas, or she grew up in Texas, she's bilingual. And so what she did, without me knowing, was she contacted the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Spain, and she got the contact information for the Baha'i community where I was going to be studying for six months. And she wrote me a letter and she said, if you ever get homesick in Alicante, the city where I was going to be, she said, you know how the Baha'is are. She said, you can always just call them up, you know, and tell them that you know some Baha'is back home and that you're homesick. And they'll just invite you over and make you feel <laughs> and make you feel at home. And that was really it. So I had a name and a phone number, and I went over there. And sure enough, within about six weeks, I was very homesick. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? So I just went to the the public payphone down the street, and I called this person. And basically, because my Spanish was still very bad. I basically read this script that my aunt had written out for me, explaining who I was and how I had gotten their phone number and everything. And they did invite me over for dinner. And I went to their home that same week, and I met this family, and it was a husband and wife with two small children. And they just took me in like I was their long-lost American cousin, And they had me over, I would say, about twice a week for about two months. You know, the the wife in the family was Persian, and so she would cook this huge meal, wonderful food, and we'd all eat together. And then she and I would sit, and I would help her with her English homework because she was taking an English class. And then I would ask her questions about the Baha'i faith. And this went on. And it was my favorite thing, you know, the thing that I looked forward to every week. And we did this for a while until I finally said, you know, I can't stand this anymore. I'm, I want to be a Baha'i, and I, I just feel it. And, you know, so finally one day I just said to her, 
I really want to be a Baha'i. You know, I don't think I can be, but I want to be. And she said, you know, why don't you think you can be a Baha'i? And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, the people are so nice and they're so good. And and she said, look, anybody who wants to be can be a Baha'i. She said, do you want to be a Baha'i? I said, yes. She said, okay, then that's it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so it was really something that I had built up in my mind as being very difficult and complicated. And, and in the end, you know, it really wasn't. So they were a really, really wonderful family. So that's kind of how it happened. And then I had to write letters to my parents and my family back home telling them that I had made this big decision, which I think sort of shocked them. Yeah, what, um, made you, what makes you think so? Well, <laughs> of course, you know, when you make a decision that you think is 100% positive and you're all excited about, you don't think that anybody else could possibly have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote them these letters, oh, the most wonderful thing has happened, and I've, <laughs> I've converted, and I've become a Baha'i, and isn't that terrific? You know, I didn't hear anything back, and finally I called, I called my mother, and, and I said, did you get my letter? And she said, yes, and I said, well, what do you think? And she said, mm, we'll talk about it when I see you, because <laughs> she was coming to visit me in Spain. Mm-hmm. it all of a sudden dawned on me that maybe not everybody was going to be excited about, as excited about this as I was. And it just, you know, my family was really pretty accepting, but it took a little time for them to, I think, accept the fact that I, I wasn't sort of going with the family tradition, which was going to church and participating in, in all of those, you know, traditional things like Christmas and Easter and everything that's so much a part of our culture. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much the religious aspect as it was the change in culture. It, it took some years for me to figure out how to deal with that and for them to figure out how to deal with that. But over time, we've, I think everybody's kind of come to terms with, with it. What made your mother think that you weren't going to participate anymore in those kind of traditional stuff? I'm not sure, because I certainly didn't say, well, hey, you know, now that I am a part of the Baha'i community, I'm not going to not going to participate in any of this. I didn't say that. But she told me once that she felt as if it reflected on her that she had somehow failed. Mm that in trying to raise me as a Christian, the fact that I had decided to do something else kind of reflected on her. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, from my point of view now, you know, I say, well, it's, it seems to me quite the opposite. You know, that thanks to her raising me as in the Christian faith, I feel like that sort of led me to discover the Baha'i faith and kind of go down, like lead maybe a more spiritual life than I would have otherwise. But that's difficult for everybody to understand that. Right. So after you became a Baha'i, did mm-hmm. things change for you in the direction you were going in in your life? Things, things did change. There were certain things that I 
tested out in myself before becoming a Baha'i. Like, I knew, for example, that Baha'is don't drink alcohol. And, you know, as a young person in college, I had and would go to parties like most people. And and I thought, you know, it was a pretty big part of my social life and my group of friends. And I thought, well, if I am really going to decide to become a Baha'i, I want to do it 100%. So before declaring that I wanted to become a Baha'i, I said, okay, I'm not going to drink alcohol for like a month <laughs> or two whole months. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, if I, can, if I can do that and sort of accept the pressure that I knew that I would get from my friends, and sort of be able to handle it, then I said, okay, if, if I can do that, then, then I'll become a Baha'i without any problem. But I didn't want to say that I was a Baha'i and then, you know, struggle with all kinds of those kinds of difficulties. I mean, in a sense, it changed my life quite a bit because um, I had to explain to my friends that I was going to have a different kind of social life. But, you know, the vast majority of them just thought it was really interesting and they we remained friends so it wasn't quite as big a deal as I thought it might be in the other sense I mean academically at school it didn't make a big difference I'd say it just helped me to to focus keep myself out of trouble because of the emphasis in the Baha'i faith on service to humanity I started to think about okay if I'm going to you know, pick a major in college, I want it to be something that can lead me down a path where I can be of some service to the world sometime in my life. Well, in fact, I guess it did affect me in some way because I had been a political science major before that, and I thought of going into politics. And then after becoming a Baha'i, I changed my major to journalism. Now, how does the Baha'i faith impact a decision to go from political science to something else? Because members of the Baha'i faith, although we are encouraged to follow politics, to understand our government, and to vote, and those kinds of things, but we don't actually run for office. We don't run for political office, I should say. Because campaigning and being a member of political party is seen as kind of working against the spirit of, of unity, which is sort of the overriding goal of the Baha'i faith is to unite people. And so becoming involved in party politics, which is divisive, is something that we don't participate in. So becoming a Baha'i at that age, I was very conflicted because I was very interested in in politics, in government, and international relations. And at that time, I didn't really realize that it it would have been fine for me to continue studying political science and just not gone into party politics. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really understand that at that point. And I thought, well, anything political maybe was, was bad. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it was years later that somebody told me that, no, actually, Baha'is, it's, it's very encouraged to understand the world that we live in. And study political science is actually a very good thing. But at the time, I was, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what a just 
parts of my life to really live a more spiritual life. And so I guess to do that, studying politics didn't really fit in that equation at the time. Right. Uh, you also said something interesting. You said something about keeping you out of trouble. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Do I have to talk about that on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> only, only if you want to. <laughs> if you don't want to, we can move on. <laughs> I think I think we'll skip that. <laughs> uh, it's your choice. <laughs> okay, that's funny. All right. So, but it did keep you out of trouble. Yes, I would say just you know, like I was saying about you know, because in in college you're exposed to everything. Mm-hmm. You can go any way you want. You can still live as if you're living under your parents' roof. And you can abide by the rules and and be very well behaved and focus on school, but it's also an opportunity for everybody that age to explore and and do whatever they want because their parents aren't there looking over them anymore. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I I wasn't really that wild, but I think that I was also spending a lot of time focused on my social life and not spending a whole lot of time thinking about my spiritual development and my future. So without getting into the gory details, <laughs> I think <laughs> becoming a Baha'i shifted my focus mm-hmm. back onto being a part of a community that was positive and learning about how to be a good citizen like a useful member of humanity instead of somebody who was focused completely on myself and having fun. You returned from Spain. You're, you're now a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. What was the next step in your life? Well, I came back. I had two years of school left before I graduated. I became active in the Baha'i community at that point. I made a lot of new friends. I finished, I graduated, and I moved to the Boston area and started working. At what? I worked for as a technical writer for a medical company. What other jobs did you have? Well, after I worked there for a year, I was fired. <laughs> well, why is that? <laughs> uh, which, which was in the, you know, hindsight was a great thing because it was an incredibly boring job, and it was not a good fit at all for my personality, and I think I knew that, and my bosses knew that, and so they decided to let me go, and I found another job working for a nonprofit organization that ran international exchange programs and taught languages, and that was a much better fit, and so the company was based in Japan, and so I was able to go to Japan and Some of the things I did were preparing youth to go on summer exchange programs, but I got to work with people from all over the world, and that was, I knew what I really wanted to do in some capacity, so this was sort of a a much better fit, and I was there for three years. And then what happened was I knew it was time for a change. I asked the company if they would transfer me to Tokyo, and they said no. And I just felt like I really wanted to live overseas again. 
So I did two things. I applied for service as a volunteer at the Baha'i World Center in Israel, and I took the LSATs to apply to law school. I did both at the same time, and I said, okay, if I'm accepted to go and serve at the Baha'i World Center, that's what I'm going to do. And if they don't accept me, then I'm going to apply to law school. So they did accept me. So I said, well, that must be what I'm meant to do next. So I left my other job. And after a couple of months of preparation, I moved to Israel. I offered to be there for several years, and they invited me to come for two and a half years. So I agreed to do that. And yeah, I guess it was about two years. It was getting close to the time that I was scheduled to leave that Jafford and I decided that we wanted to get married. So, How did Jafford get into the picture? Jafford got into the picture my, <laughs> the second day that I was in Haifa. I moved in with a woman who worked with him. They worked in the gardens department together. And so I arrived, and the next day she said, I'm going to invite over a bunch of my friends to meet you. And I said, fine. So people came over for dinner, and, and he was one of them. So I met him right away after arriving in Israel. He's from Kenya. And we just hit it off. As soon as we met, I said, okay, I'm going to be friends with this guy. And we were really good friends for a couple of years before deciding to get married. Mm-hmm. And so you got married there in Haifa, Israel? Mm-hmm. We got married there in April of 2004. So, you know, we're an American and a Kenyan with an Israeli marriage license. And then you moved back to the States after you got married? When we left Haifa in January of 2005, we actually went to Kenya first, and we spent three and a half months there, spending time with his family, basically living in his village, spending as much time as we could there, knowing that once we came to the States, it would be harder to go back for such a long time. So we spent a few months there, and then, and then we went back to Haifa for a couple of days, picked up our luggage, got our plane tickets, and, and came here. What did you do when you got back to the United States? Well, we didn't have a place to live, so we lived with my parents for, I think, about a month or month and a half. And we were just here trying to adjust. Jafford had to learn his way around. Um, we were trying to decide where in the country we should settle, whether we should stay around here near my parents or whether we should go somewhere else. We are just trying to figure out all those things about jobs and and how were we going to support ourselves. And ultimately, we decided to stay here because we figured if we had children, you know, it would be really nice to be near my parents. What are you and Jaffred doing now? We both work for a company that my dad has. It's a financial advising firm. And we're both working here. We've been working here since the summer that we arrived. They hired us soon after we arrived because they recently lost a couple of employees and we were looking for jobs. So we're working here full-time and Jafford is also going taking college courses. And now we have Fazal, our son, who's almost seven months old. And because we both work here and it's a family business, we can bring the baby with us to the office. 
So he comes right along and sits on everybody's lap during the day. (laughs) I then turned the interview over to Jaffred and asked him to describe where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in in one of the villages in Kenya. In in Kenya, the villages are different. In Kenya, the village life is, is basically... Everybody is related in the, in the village, and then it's kind of a community, community life. Uh, you know everybody, and you, you go to school with your cousins and, and all your neighbors. There are very many uh, big families. My, like myself, I come from a family of uh, 12. I have six brothers and five sisters. I'm in the middle. I'm uh, number five. What was your religious up- upbringing like? Um, my father became a Baha'i during the 1960s when he uh, married my mother in 1972. My mother became a Baha'i as well. So I was born in a Baha'i family, basically. But most of my relatives were Christians, so I also attended uh, Christian churches, and I, I knew a lot about Christian faith. So what was the relationship between your Christian family and your Baha'i family? The relationship was just normal relationship. For example, in a, as I said, everything is done in a communal way. For example, if someone has died, every person in the village will participate. It doesn't matter which religion you are from or, or which denomination you are from. So in that way, everybody participated. It was not easy to actually tell that this person is, uh, is from this uh, denomination or from this religion. So the relationship was very close. And, uh, and in fact, when I was young, until the age of 16, I wasn't comfortable identifying myself as a Baha'i because the majority of the, of, uh, the, of the village children were Christians. They came from Christian families. I thought that, I, that, that they were having fun. They, they, they had very fun life compared to us Baha'is because the Baha'is were very few mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't as much excitement as compared to, to the Christians. So I participated in the Christian faith a lot. I went in churches. I, I sang in, uh, Christian ch- in, in Christian choirs, youth choirs, and uh, I attended the children classes. How was it that you started identifying more as a Baha'i? How did that happen? It was at the age of 16 when I was in high school. In Kenya, we, we have a high school, four years in high school. and So the first year, you, you call it Form 1, and then second year, Form 2, and then the last year, you call it Form 4. So when I was in Form 2, there were uh, Baha'i travel teachers. They were from the U.S. And they were actually just a few years older than I was at that time. They explained some things. Although I used to hear from my parents the teachings of the Baha'i faith, but to hear the Baha'i faith from young people and from also from very far from where I grew up, I thought that that was very moving. And the way when they came... We assembled in our, all the uh, all the students in our university uh, in our high school uh, assembled in a big hall, and then they gave their Baha'i presentation, and then students were allowed to ask questions. And the, some of the questions that I thought were very difficult, they answered them very simply, and in 
a very um, logic way. Can you remember some of the questions? Uh, yeah, like uh, one question that they asked was, uh, because, you know, many, many students are, were Christian in my high school. So one of the questions that they asked was, if you are saying that the Baha'i, what is the difference between the Baha'i faith and us? What, what can make you, what can make someone change if they are Baha'i, if they are Christians to become Baha'is? Uh, if you're saying that because they were talking of oneness of religion, oneness of mankind, and oneness of God. So they, they, so they asked the question that if that's the case, why can't just people unite without even changing religion? And I thought that that was a very, very compl- uh, complicated question mm-hmm. that someone could answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer they gave was very, very moving to me uh, because they used the analogy of a student in school that after achieving the, uh, the goal of one level, you move to the next one. And that's how also the, re- the religion of God is with mankind, that as humanity, we are moving in stages from one stage to another. And when we, when we reach a certain level, and then God raises the standard of our teaching. So it, it only makes sense that when... Uh, humanity reaches a certain level, then they then the teachings or the level of teachings also changes. And that I thought that it was very, it was very moving because those are some of the questions that uh, many people used to ask me at the Baha'i, but I didn't have a clear answer to them. Mm-hmm. So answering such questions, I thought that that was a turning point. So after that, you started identifying more as a Baha'i? Yeah, and I was I was very proud actually to be a Baha'i, and I I actually started even talking more about it to my uh, friends and my classmates, and even when I was asked to to say uh, to say a prayer, I would proudly say a Baha'i prayer. Mm-hmm. But before that, I wasn't very comfortable uh, even saying a prayer, or if I was asked whether I was a Baha'i or not, I would just give a very vague answer that um, anyway it's a religion of my parents but uh, myself I I'm not sure about it so it sounds like this experience that you had gave you some kind of courage to be different to be different and also to be comfortably different mm-hmm. because it was like the Christian life was very very comfortable and there were so many many people who are Christians even up to now so many people are Christians in Kenya, and it was easier. But one of the things that actually is different when I compare the Baha'i faith and Christianity is that whenever I went to churches, there was no session for asking questions or just trying to understand something, or if you had a question, you weren't free to ask a question and be answered. But whenever a Baha'i uh, talked, or whenever anybody who was presenting the faith talked about the faith, they had a session where people could ask questions and answers would be given. So that I thought that it, it was kind of a free way of expressing, or, or you could be proud of something like that. And from that point on, I was actually active in the Baha'i, uh, in the Baha'i faith. When that day that I went home and then I told my mom that actually... I really, really want to be a Baha'i, and she helped me, I feel, 
out the, the, the Baha'i card, and that was the beginning of my serious Baha'i life. Now, what were the circumstances that took you to Haifa, Israel? After my high school, I went for a um, six-week course in a Baha'i, Baha'i six-week course in a Baha'i institute. And then while we were there, I met some Baha'is who said that uh, they had served uh, in the Holy Land. They said that actually anybody is uh, free to apply. If you're interested, you can just apply and go and serve there. And uh, this six-week course, its purpose was to, after you finish, you had to, to volunteer, to, to go and serve for one year. It's like one year use of service. So these Baha'is who had served in Haifa, they, they were telling me that um, actually this one year use of service can prepare me if I wanted to, volu- to go and volunteer in Israel. It, it is a good way of me learning how I can live away from my family and, and prepare me. So I, I got the courage to actually apply because they told me that when you apply to Haifa, you just don't apply like today and then next month you're accepted. It's a process. In this course is when I applied and then I sent in my applications to, to Haifa. And then I went for one year of service I finished that in 1999, in, uh, in 1998. Jafred, what did you do for that one year of service before going to Haifa? The main purpose of it was to go and strengthen the Baha'i communities because there were so many people who became Baha'is in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s in Kenya. The purpose of our service was to go in these communities and try to find out the reasons and try to encourage these Baha'is to revive the communities, Baha'i communities. So basically we, we were just helping the, the, the Baha'i communities to be strong again. Okay. And, and also when, while we were in the field, I remember with my, with my partner, we also participated in different things in the community, uh, community services other than Baha'is, like digging the roads, as a community, they they meet and then they said, you you dig the road and you clear the road, not like here where you where the, they have machines and all these tractors and bulldozers that do that work. So we participated in that because sometimes the road can be very bushy, the plants can overcrow the road. So once a year, once or twice a year, people volunteer and then they cut those uh, bushes down to make their, their roads passable. And then was it right after that you went to Haifa, Israel? I finished my service sometime in September uh, 1998. I had applied a year earlier. So after that I went back home and then I decided that before I go and start doing something else, because I, I, had, I, I had two choices. One was to wait for this Haifa application, see whether they will accept me, and then I could go. And the other one was uh, to go to Nairobi or in Mo- to Mombasa and find a job there. So I decided that if, before I go to Mombasa or Nairobi to find a job, I uh, had to communicate with the Baha'i World Center and find out what stage my application was at. Sometime in December of 1998, I wrote a letter to the Baha'i World Center and asked them 
uh, sometime in, in January 1999, they, they replied to me and said that they accepted me to go and serve there in Haifa. So I was there in total five years. And I understand you got married while in Haifa. I also met Christina, my wife, and we got married. So what was it like arriving at the United States? Because I had heard a lot from different people that, oh, America is very great, America is very advanced country. I had very high expectations of America. And we were received by Christina's father and her stepmother. When they started driving us from Logan Airport, where we live right now, I even made the comment that, wow, this country, they have preserved trees very much. It is very, very green because on the side of the road, there were so many trees. There were so many trees wherever I looked, it was green trees. So I thought that they were maybe they're very, very advanced in environmental preservation. So that's what I thought. In Kenya, when you are driving, you see houses on the side of the road. But here, I didn't see any house. There were just trees. You know, when I was growing up, Kenya was very green. I lived close to the Rift Valley in western province, Kenya. Just east to where I live, there are hills. They are called Nandi Hills. And when I was growing up, that Nandi Hills was full of trees. By the time I left, People had cut down trees, burning charcoal and, and using it for timber and using it for construction. So those hills were completely bare. Even when I went back last May, even more worse than it was when I left in 1999. People were cutting down trees that had taken like 100 years to grow, to mature. People were just cutting them. And right now, we are having great consequences because the rains of last year, it was very, very bad. Those very hills that used to have many trees and they are very bare right now, the flood came and there was a very, very serious landslide and it buried people alive. There are efforts of some people like Wangara Mathai. He started a Green Party movement in Kenya to plant trees. He even won a a Nobel Prize a few years ago. The problem is not that people are, don't care. The problem is economic. So it's not easy actually to turn that around unless you solve the uh, economic problem. It will take some decades to do that. What has to be done? When people get educated and they understand the, the importance of environment and then they understand the alternative ways of raising money so here you are in the States. I understand you have now started a family. Oh, yes. We have a son, a little son, Fazal. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Hopefully we will take him to Kenya and we can go and see his relatives and, and his grandparents. Now, our long-term plan is, is to go back to Africa and, and help and try to do some service there. I, I really, really like farming and the environment, and especially after being enlightened a lot, after being in, in Israel and also after being in, in the United States. My, uh, my hopes is that when I go back to Africa, I'll be able to help in that area. My wife and I have a long-term plan that we can go and settle back there and then try to help in a small scale on a grassroots level. 
helping people understand the importance of preserving the environment, the importance of how to manage your finances on a very small scale, on a daily basis. So, God willing, that's what we will try to do in the future. Well, Jafred, I wish the best of luck for you in the future, you and your wife, Christina, and your son. Yeah, oh, thank you very much for thinking about us. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jafred and Christina Mato, a Baha'i couple who met at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. She is an American, and he is Kenyan. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Can you hear the sound of hearts beating all the world around? Down in the valley, out on the plain, everywhere around the world, the heartbeat sounds the same. Black or white, red or tan, it's the heart of the Can you hear the sound of laughter all the world around? High in the mountains, down by the sea, everywhere around the world, laughter sounds the same to me. Black or white, red or tan, it's the sound of the
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.